Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. Welcome, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Uh, We are prepared today to start our countdown of the greatest T.R. Miller football teams of all time. But before we start that, uh, I owe you an apology. I've been kind of AWOL for about three weeks here. And just like anybody else who doesn't quite live up to the expectations of others, uh, I have some really good excuses uh, for not uh, publishing an episode. So I'm going to get into those here in uh, just a minute, tell you exactly uh, where I've been and what I've been doing and what's been going on. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about just for a minute before we get going is that on um, Monday, March the 13th, I attended the Alabama High School Sports Hall of Fame induction banquet uh, in Montgomery where T.R. Miller's Ron Jackson was inducted into that organization. Uh, Ron came to T.R. Miller in 1990. We hired him in that summer of 1990. And as I've said many times before, when you hire a coach, you either get more than you think you're going to get or you get less than you think you're going to get. You never really get what you're looking for. And in Ron's case, obviously, we got way more than uh, we ever thought about when we first hired him. Uh, not that we didn't think he was going to be good, but as time went on, uh, he got to be a better and better coach. The other night at the banquet, there was one thing that when when they got ready to induct him, they started, um, they played the video where they interviewed him and talked about some of his accomplishments and so forth. The one that blew me away is that he has won more than a thousand basketball games that's boys and girls he has won more than a thousand basketball games now i want you to think about that for a minute how many games a thousand basketball games would be if if you you won 25 games a year it would take you 40 years 40 years to do that so obviously there were some years that Ron coached uh, boys and girls, so he was kind of doubling up. But just think about how hard that is to do, to coach the boys and the girls. That means that every time you practice, you've got to have two practices. Unbelievable that, that you can win a 1,000 games. Let me, again, let me put a 1,000 games in perspective here. Have you watched a 1,000 basketball games in your lifetime? Well, Ron Jackson's won a 1,000 games. All right, so I just think that's an incredible, incredible statistic. Ron has just been uh, a first-class coach, done a great job, obviously, with um, with our girls' program, uh, state champion many times over. And so congratulations to him. Got to see him uh, after the banquet and, and talk to him a few minutes. And so it was just a, a great event. Always a great event anytime a T.R. Miller coach is inducted into the Alabama High School 
Sports Hall of Fame. Second of all, on March the 20th, the next Monday, Michael and Mallory Riggs were blessed with the birth of their third child, which is my third grandchild. And her name is Miller Massey Riggs. So that's pretty neat. Everything's been great. We went up and uh, stayed for about a, a five or six days there, at least help, trying to help out and, and do some things while all that was going on. It's obviously exciting. And it didn't hit me till later. They're going to call her Miller. It didn't hit me till later that uh, for the rest of her life, she will, or as long as her last name is Riggs anyway, you know, she will tell somebody what her name is. She'll say, I'm Miller Riggs. And they're going to look at her kind of funny, and they're going to say, I bet I know who your grandparents are. Because it's going to be hard for her to run from that. So I hope she won't want to run from it. But uh, it's a pretty neat, pretty neat name. And we are very, very excited about our new, our new granddaughter. That's one of the things that kind of got me behind a little bit. And then while we were up there, my grandson, Major, played his first t-ball game. Um, it's been a while since I've been involved in, like, t-ball and all. By the way, they don't practice much. They, they practice, like, twice, maybe three times, say, let's play. Major, uh, you, you never know when you're in your first baseball game, you know, how all that's going to go and what's going to happen. He had already played a little soccer at, um, you know, he's, he's just five. So he had already played a little soccer at, at age four and at, at, at age five. The way they do the, uh, the play the game up there at this place he's playing in at Auburn is the coaches go out there and they do it like coach pitch for three pitches. And then if you don't hit one of those three pitches fair, then they put the ball on the tee and let you hit it off the tee, which is a pretty good way to do it. I was amazed at the number of uh, kids who could hit the coach's pitch. Major comes up for his first at bat, and I just tell you, his grandfather's pretty exciting. They throw him the first pitch. And he swings, and he hits the first ball fair. Runs down to first base very fast. Ended up scoring. He was tickled to death. Second time he got up, he only got up twice. Second time he got up, they throw the ball. He swings at the first pitch again. Hits the ball again. Nice hit, even a little bit better than the last one. Again, gets around the first base and then comes around to score. So we were just pretty excited about all that. We celebrated his great first T-ball uh, game by going to one of his favorite places to eat, Waffle House. And by the way, when Major goes to Waffle House, here's what he orders every time. He orders a waffle with chocolate chips. Didn't know they had such a thing. Waffle with chocolate chips. Cheesy eggs, he calls them, bacon, hash browns, and chocolate milk. So this is his this is his menu when we go. And so he ate that. He ate a bunch of it too. So it was a big night uh, that night uh, that we got to go and uh, not only celebrate the uh, birth of our grandchild, but also uh, celebrate with Major as he at his first t-ball game. Well, now the next part. We knew it was going to be difficult to come up with 
the top 10 TR Miller football teams of all time. The last episode, or the episode before that actually, DJ had kind of laid out some groundwork. We had a committee that was going to work. Our job was to give them all the information, make suggestions, help them. But they were going to do the voting, and they were going to decide on the, the 10 best football teams in the history of T.R. Miller High School. So we did all that. And occasionally while this was going on, they would call and ask a question. And to give you an example of one of the, one of the suggestions or one of the questions they had, you know, one night they called and said, hey, we're going to give you four teams from the 1980s, and we want you to rank them. And so they gave me the years. I called DJ and said, hey, we need to rank these teams. We did, and that's kind of the kind of things that we were trying to do for them and, and, and help them along. After about two weeks or so, I get a phone call, and here's what the committee said. We think we're going to quit. And I said, no, no, no. You can't quit. We're not paying you. So it's not like a job. You can walk in and quit. You can't quit. We appeal to you. You can't quit. And they said, okay, here's our problem. We basically have agreed on who we think the best four or five T.R. Miller football teams are of all time. I said, that's great. They said, we haven't decided the order exactly yet. We'll pretty much kind of know the first four or five who they are. Here's our problem. Our problem is that on the next five, there are as many as 30 teams or more who could make up the next five. And they said, the difference between these teams is just a sliver. So, you know, being the educator I am, I looked up sliver, make sure I knew what it meant. And sliver means it is a portion of something that is very small. A sliver of cheese would be a very thin slice of cheese. So they said that you've got these 30 teams and there's a sliver of difference in them. There is no way we can pick five. And they made a suggestion. And their suggestion was this, that instead of doing a top 10, that we do a top 25. They said, you know, that's what football playoff committee in college does. They, they do a top 25. It's the top four that are going to end up making the playoffs, but they do a top 25. The AP always does a top 25. So can't we do a top 25? Because there are just so many good teams, we're going to leave some people out completely. And, and one of the things, that, and there were two things that they talked about that really bothered them. One was they just don't think, just didn't believe that they were going to be able to do justice to the teams of the first 30 or 40 years. So you're talking about the teams of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. They just weren't going to be able to do justice to them. They know a little less about them anyway. But if we've got to pick 10, it's just going to be hard. We'll be hard-pressed to do them justice. And the second thing that they talked about was that let's say that this team right here didn't make the top 10. They almost did. Maybe they're number 11. And then you've got 97 teams. Terrell Miller's had 97 football teams. 
this team's not going to know whether they were number 11 or they were number 97. And we just don't think that's right. We think that, that these guys should understand that they might not be in the top 10, but they could be 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, 20, or whatever. And that we recognize their season, we honor what they did, and we just think that if we had 25 teams, it would honor everyone a lot better. And so we agree with that. And then the other thing they said is that we understand too that whoever is essentially on the outside looking in at 26, 27, 28, whoever they are, they're going to be really good football teams too. But we've got to draw a line somewhere. So we're okay with that if we can do 25. And so, you know, we agreed with all that and we turned the blues to do the T.R. Miller top 25 teams of all time. So what I want to do here in this first segment is I just want to cover what the committee did and why they did it, what they thought was important. When they started, what they did was they didn't really eliminate teams. What they did, they said, it's kind of like putting all 97 teams sitting up in the bleachers. And in order for you to make the top 25, you got to get to the playing field. So how are we going to distinguish who needs to be who needs to go out on the field and compete for this top 25? And so they said we've got to have some one or two guidelines. So the first guideline was state championship. If you won a state championship, then you're in the playing field. So there have been six state champions. The six state champions were automatically not not in the 25 necessarily. You figure they're going to be, but they weren't automatic qualifiers. But what they were is they were in the game, and so we took the the, the tops those those top state championship teams. The next thing the committee said is one thing that they had figured out, which was pretty smart. One thing that everybody has in common. All 97 teams, they played a regular season. And that season might have been eight, nine, or ten games, but everybody played a regular season. So if everybody played a regular season and everybody had a regular season record, and they said, we want to take every football team that went undefeated in the regular season and put them in the game. Let's, let's get them out of the bleachers and put them on the field. And there have been ten T.R. Miller football teams that went undefeated in the regular season. Ten T.R. Miller football teams that have gone undefeated in the regular season. Now, three of those were state champions, so they were already in there. So there were like seven more teams that we took and put out there on the field. All right, so that's 13 we've got out there in competition right now, 13. Then they said... Let's take everybody that only lost one regular season game. One regular season game. Not not one game total, not playoff, just one. Re- we're talking about the regular season. One regular season game. And there was something like 22 teams, some fantastic number, that lost one regular season game. So when we took the state champions the teams that went undefeated, other teams that went undefeated in the regular season, and the teams that only lost one regular season game, 
there were 35 of those teams. Literally, that was almost 40% of the entire history of T.R. Miller football was, was in that. Later on, when we come back at the end, I'll try to compare that to some of the other teams around us to just show you how, how fantastic a number that that really is. Now we've got 35 teams, and they said, we think that's enough. So that's where you're going to qualify to compete for the top 25. Now, here's who it left out. It left out a team who made it to the state championship game, but who had lost like three regular season games. It also left out a lot of good football teams that lost two regular season games. And I'll give you just a quick example. My junior year, 1972, we were 8-1 going to the last game against Neal in an era when it was really difficult to make the playoffs. If we had beat Neal, we were going to make the playoffs 9-1. There were only eight teams in the state going to make the playoffs. We were going to be one of them. And because there are only eight teams, it starts to the quarterfinals. You win one playoff game, you're in the semis. We had a great defensive team that year. We're playing Neal. They had a good football team, and they beat us. One of the things we found out here is that one game makes a big difference sometimes. Because we lost two regular season games, we're, we're out of consideration for the top 25. And there was a little discussion about that, but I think that everybody eventually said, you got to draw a line somewhere. And so we're saying that if you lost two regular season games, you're not going to be in the discussion. And again, that eliminates some pretty good football teams. Here's the way they went about trying to determine the top 25. And here's one. So we, we, we just got through talking about record. Okay, so record was the first thing, obviously, that they looked at. Here's the second thing. So when we took these 25, these 35 teams over here, how are we going to distinguish who are the 25 who are going in? And then how are we going to line them up? So the next thing was losses. Who did you lose to? What kind of team did they have? What was their record that year? How many points did you lose by? And to a lesser extent about the losses, when did you lose to them? And that was mostly about the, the, the playoff deal and the playoff teams. Did you lose the second round of playoffs or was it in the semifinals or the finals? When did you lose? Because they thought that once we got the playoffs, that that made a difference. And certainly we could, we could understand that. And very quickly, let me just explain about the playoff deal. The, the committee just finally said, uh, it's just hard to deal with that. So what we're going to do is take everybody's season as it is. If you made the playoffs and you won playoff games, we're going to give you credit for those wins. We're going to talk about those, those great wins, whatever they are. Those teams who played before there was playoffs, we're going to view your season as it is. And, and we don't necessarily compare numbers of wins where this team won 12 games and you won nine games and say they're a better team than you were because they won 12 games. Well, they had the opportunity to play in the playoffs. We kind of dealt with it that way, just looking at your season as it is against the people that you competed against under the rules you were competing. We tried to handle it that way. In 1967, I think, was the first time they had any playoffs 
uh, for the smaller schools. There was a point system. You got 10 points, I think, for beating a team in your class or above. It was very difficult to make the playoffs. There were only four classifications at the time. It was very difficult to make the playoffs. There were 80 teams or something in each classification. And uh, basically, if you lost one game, you had a chance to get in. If you lost two games, you wasn't getting in. And there was <clears throat> there was four teams in the 60s, and I think beginning like in 1970 or somewhere, they went to eight teams. We played under that scenario right until 1974, I believe. And then beginning in 74, they started putting you in areas so that you would you would play everybody in your area. And there was usually about six teams in an area. You had about, again, four classifications. You got 75 or 80 schools, I guess, in those classifications. And they divided them up all over the state. And you had about six schools or something in, a, in, a, in an area. You had to be the area champion. If you were the area champion, you went to playoffs. If you were second, you're out. So again, we had that scenario going on and happening. You know, during those years, I think there was four weeks of playoffs rather than three weeks that they had been there. So that's kind of the way the playoff thing went. And then in 1984, we went to six classifications and went to not only the, and they put us in areas and the winner and the runner-up made the playoffs. So now you've got literally half the teams in the state making the playoffs. That was a, a big change and a big change to the playoff thing. So that's kind of the way that worked. The committee didn't really get into to, to worrying about all that, and, and I certainly understand why. They just kind of took it as you made the playoffs, you didn't make the playoffs, and judged your season as it was. And then the third thing they really looked at is how dominant were you? In your wins, how dominant were you? How much did you beat people by? That kind of brought about the fourth thing that they looked at, which was scoring differential. Okay, scoring differential means take all the points you scored and however many games you played, add them up, divide by the number of games you played. That's the average that you scored every week. They did the same thing for the points you gave up. How many points you give up every week, total them, divide by the number of games, that gave you the average points you gave up every week. And then, so what was the difference in that? When you subtracted uh, the, the amount of points that you scored and you took the amount that was scored against you and you subtracted from that, what was the average of victory? And very quickly they determined that a 20-point differential was really good. Anybody who scored... Uh, over the course of their year, ended up beating their team, their their opponents by more than twenty points. That was really good. If you did less than twenty points, that was okay. As that thing dropped down there to to like, just to give you an example, it dropped down there to twelve or thirteen points on some some teams. It just meant you weren't near as dominant in what you did. But it did give us some insight into into what was going on. And the one thing that the committee really liked about scoring differential is it's the one thing that didn't seem to matter whether it was the 1940 team or the 2015 team. Scoring differential 
stayed pretty consistent because even in the era where there wasn't many points scored, go back to the 1930s and 40s, they're not scoring a lot of points because of the rules and so forth. Even in that time, the scoring differential held pretty true as it did in 2015, 2020. So that was one thing that allowed you to compare teams a little bit as you look through that. One of the things that the committee uh, looked at to start with and then backed out of was opponents' records. In other words, the total records of all the opponents that you played. And the reason for that was that the playoff teams, if they played very deep in the playoffs, they got a bump on that because after the first week of the playoffs, whoever you're playing after the first week of the playoffs generally is going to have a pretty good record. And so if you play to the semifinals or something, those last teams you're playing, a couple of those teams that you played and beat, and even though they beat you, got credit for the record. When you looked at all of that, the deeper you played in the playoffs, the, the bigger the separation was in records. They just said they didn't think that was fair to, to, to the teams that didn't make the playoffs. So they paid a little bit less attention. They did pay attention to individual records of the teams you lost to, but they didn't, they didn't look at the total uh, records of all the teams that you played there. Another thing that they looked at, um, and, and those were the four main things they looked at, to a lesser degree, they looked at the Neal score. Did you beat Neal? Talking about hard to be in top 25, didn't beat Neal, although there's going to be some there, I think. They also looked at how bad you beat Neal and, and how, obviously how good Neal was at the time. So the Neal score was something they looked at. The eye test, personal accounts, uh, became more and more important, particularly when you start trying to decide if who's number 17, who's number 18. You know, and so a lot of the questions they would ask, they wanted eye test. Did you see this team? Who do you think is better, this team or this team? And they might ask somebody who played during that era or somebody who played on both teams, you know, who do you think was the was the better team or somebody that coached on those teams uh, to, to, to kind of help with, with some of those things. Um, players made a difference. And I think that was part of that was the eye test. But when you had a truly great player, it was easy to think that that team maybe was a little better because of that player. And so that was something that they talked about, great great players and, and so forth. They talked about somebody who was the best teams of the decade. You know, who was the best team of the 1950s? Who was the best team of the 1970s? And so, again, that was when they, they went back, looked at a lot of stats and different things. And if you were the best team of your decade, that was kind of feathering your hat a little bit. Um, and then they also went back and, and talked some about some special accomplishments that some teams had. And by special accomplishments, what I mean is that there were some teams who hold some records. Um, so the 94 team is the only team that won 15 games. The, I think the 2003 team has scored more points than any other team in the history of T.R. Miller High School. There were some, some teams back in the early days who gave up an average of seven points or less per game. <laughs> there were some of those giving up a ridiculously a small amount of points in what was a defensive era. Um, they also looked at uh, great upsets. 
that during the course of your season you played somebody that was really good and you upset them or you beat somebody that was really good. And the other thing there was some discussion about is there were some teams that had some um, some difficult circumstances. Just give you one example. The 2004 team had the hurricane, I think it was Hurricane Ivan, that disrupted their season. By disrupted, I mean they just not only they, they canceled a game or whatever, but we canceled a game. We were out of school for, I guess, nearly a week. Players were going out helping clear, you know, yards and cleaning yards and, and different things. We actually did some community service doing some of that when it was going on. We were without electricity at school. We didn't practice for several days. We came back and played uh, Andalusian a Saturday afternoon game, um, primarily because the, the police didn't want us to play at night in Bruton at the time because there was, there was a curfew. You know, we had a curfew at the time and so forth. So that was a, a, a difficult thing for them to handle, and they won anyway. And then there was also some discussion um, about uh, injuries and that how some teams were hampered because their best player got injured, yet they still won some. And so I think that was a, 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 an important thing because there were so many teams that were on the road to, to doing great things and they're one of the truly outstanding players got hurt a key player got hurt this happened uh, uh several times uh through the course of like in 1997 antonio johnson who was our great fullback linebacker um broke his ankle at mid-season rayvon howard in 2001 got a high ankle sprain never really recovered from it in 2006 we lost one of the reasons we lost the playoff game to elmore county that year is Justin Gomez, our great linebacker, inside linebacker uh, and fullback, uh, got hurt early in the game, hurt his ankle, played the rest of the game, but was not the same. And we just didn't have that good run stopper that night. He he, he just couldn't really go. Walter Lewis got hurt um, right about mid-season or a little after in 1979. I think we were undefeated at the time, and it, it, it certainly had an effect on their season. And, of course, in 1964 um, at the Miller-Neal game, we're undefeated. Neil's lost one game. It's a dog fight. And we end up losing seven to nothing. But our great back Mike Sasser got a concussion early in the game, was not a factor in the game at all. And his speed could have very well been a factor had he broken a run, you know, he could have broken a run at any time. Losing him was a critical blow. We played great, we played hard, but we lost seven to nothing. Mike breaks a run, ended up playing the whole game, wasn't injured. We could have won that game. Had we won that game, that would be one of the truly great football teams in the history of T.R. Miller High School, just accomplished great things. So injuries played a, a, a part of all of that. And there was a little discussion, too, about classification, because classification does make a difference. Um, for years, um, there were only two classifications. It really didn't make much difference. We didn't have a playoff system. Uh, later on, they went to four classifications. Like in the 60s and the 70s, uh, there, were, there were only four classifications. So give an example. Like my senior year in 1973, we were 3A. So there's a difference in being 3A when there's four classifications and 3A when there's seven classifications. By there being four classifications, we were in the next to the biggest class. And we ended up making a playoffs, playing in the semifinals. So 
classifications did make some difference. Been talking about a lot of different things in dealing with what is now the top 25. And uh, one of the main things in trying to deal with teams of different areas a little bit is that we had one real rule change that really uh, changed high school football uh, in the early 90s when we changed the rule to allow people to use their hands. So I've got with me now uh, Coach Mark Edge. And uh, Coach Edge, you've probably spent most of your time, as not all of it, but most of it as a defensive coach. So I think it was like 1992 that we changed uh, this rule. Talk just for a minute about, um, well, first of all, let me ask you this. Why don't you explain how people had to block prior to this rule change back in everywhere from the 50s to the 60s to the 70s to the 80s? Yeah, the the blocking that we taught uh, late 80s, early 90s, and even back um, had to do with more shoulder and what they call flipper blocking, which was from your shoulder down to the point of your elbow, and you tried to lock people in, and you had to have your fist kind of balled up on your chest, and you just tried to lock them in, keep your hands in so that you didn't reach out and grab somebody. Because if your hands came away, they were going to call you for holding. If your hands came off your chest at all, they were going to call you for holding. And, I mean, it was pretty cut and dry. You know, they that's what they were, they were going to look for. And so people had a tendency to block a lot lower. Um, pad level was lower. Um, and they knew more about trying to get a blocking surface and being able to get on to people, get on their hip, and stay locked in without using their hands. They had changed this rule back in the pros probably a decade before. And then several years later, in the late 80s, the colleges went to the same thing. They went to be able to use your hands where, you know, you, you can, you had to stay kind of in the framework of the body a little bit, as they said. You couldn't reach out take your hands outside your body and grab somebody. But as long as your hands were in front of you right there, you could grab folks. So explain a little bit about how that changed offensive football and what it allowed teams to do a little more. It just changed the style now because all of a sudden everybody is higher. They're trying to get to the, to the shoulder pad breastplate because if you can get a hold of the breastplate, you can pretty much, you can steer them where you want them to go. You could, you could take sometimes smaller, quicker kids on defense. And, you know, if they could use their hands a little bit and move around, it was hard for bigger folks to block them, just to shoulder block them or flipper block them. But now, They'd reach out and just and grab hold of you and hold you. So all and, of a sudden, bigger kids now had a little bit more advantage in the offensive line, and you started seeing people putting those big old kids up there that before may not have been real aggressive. Now you can take a kid that's not quite so aggressive, teach him to use his hands, get him a little bit strong, and he can be a decent offensive lineman. And they could 
create a couple of double teams and, and get uh, some big guys locked up on another guy. They could just take him for a ride. Well, you so, know, Co- Coach, uh, you know, we had, ever since I'd been in football, we had done what we called combo blocks, which meant that we did double team a guy, and then you come off on the linebacker. Okay? Right. So, what when, when you could use your hands, the difference was – you could double team that guy, and and get and and get that movement that you wanted because you got two on one, and then when the guy other guy came off, the guy who stayed on the lineman could grab him, which meant it was going to be more difficult for him to get to the ball. But the other thing that happened is when that other blocker came off to block the linebacker, he could grab that guy. He he before where yes. the guy might have been pursuing or something. You know he's 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 trying to block him, but he's got to do it basically with him and his shoulder pads and his flippers. Now he can come off over there and just grab that linebacker, and it made playing linebacker a lot more difficult, especially with those big linemen coming off doing that. And they're hitting you in the chest and grabbing hold of them. <clears throat> so, so it's a higher game, and you work more hand to hand work so that you keep their hands off of. One of the other things that that changed here was when you can use your hands, it's easier to pass block. One of the hardest things you could ever do in football back in the 60s and 70s was to try to pass block against a guy who kind of moved around some, had a little size. You got to do that and you got to keep your fist balled up in your chest and those flippers out there and try to stay in front of that guy when he can use his hands. Now, all of a sudden, you can use your hands and pass blocking. So, obviously, when that happened, uh, now the passing game is going going to uh, certainly expand because people could protect the passer much better. Well, you would see, and this is, you know, more my opinion than probably necessarily based on fact, but there, there wasn't as much drop-back passing. There was a lot more of play action pass, you know, so that people could come off the football, still use run blocking technique, but that was how they pass protected. Well, so 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 when the when the passing game uh, made it easy to protect the passer, let's put it that way. Now teams started spreading out. And uh, they started coming up with formations that you just didn't see a whole lot prior to that. But they could put four wide receivers if they want to, make you spread out and cover them. And because of the fact that uh, they could double team and combo block and come off and use their hands, they could, once they spread you out, they could hand the ball off to a pretty good running back and make yards because there's less people in what we call the box, which is where the offensive and defensive linemen play. There are less people up in there. So the whole concept was let's spread out and throw the ball, and now there are less people in the box. We can still run the ball because we don't really need a lead block. You know, in the old days, it's like everybody needed a lead block, a fullback or somebody's got a lead up in there. Now you you didn't need that, and, and offensive football just really exploded. Well, it, it has and really and really exploded and taken off because 
you know, depending on how sophisticated you want to be on defense, you you would usually make linebackers responsible for and defensive linemen responsible for single gaps. Now the problem is, is if you're spread out, I've got to move somebody, as you said, out of the box somewhere in that vicinity because what we're seeing is the ball thrown horizontally. It's thrown laterally. It's quick screens. It's, it's what they call bubbles. And they're, they're being thrown laterally to give that athlete the ball in space. Well, now the problem is I've got a linebacker who technically is responsible for a gap inside, but who's having to play outside. And so you've got to find a way uh, to make the football math work out. Yeah, and and I tell you what, uh, uh, one of these days, another episode, we'll we'll get a little deeper into uh, some of this. You know about how the uh, spread offenses have have changed football and why you can do what you can do. I know that when we started looking at and the committee started looking at teams. We started looking at numbers like how many points a team gave up average for the year, you know. Um, as you go back and look, uh, once the rules changed, really uh, teams started giving up anywhere from seven to ten points a game more uh, as on average, and they were also scoring seven to ten points more. <laughs> than they had scored in, say, the 70s, which was the era of option football, in the 80s, which was still an era of option football. So it, it kind of changed that, that whole deal there. So, you know, I just kind of wanted people to understand a little bit, you know, as we tried to uh, uh, look at teams and as the committee tried to figure a few things out, and they got pretty confused and pretty upset in a hurry about some, some of the numbers. And, oh. and I was trying to explain some of the numbers as to why so, so maybe that'll make a, a little bit of sense anyway. So let me ask you a couple more things. All right. All right. So, so first of all, uh, back in the 1990s, you were coaching at Delville, and um, you, uh, we, we played each other during the 90s several occasions. I think in the playoffs we played 90, we played 91, we played in 92, we played in 94, now, I think we played in a regular season, 98, 99s. We played that's, five or six correct. times or whatever that is. So, of all the teams you saw that you had to um, a coach against in the 1990s from T.R. Miller, which of those would you say was the best team? Oh, my word. I don't know if I can, if I can put it on there. I, what I will say to start this was I remember sitting down – the weekend before Thanksgiving in 1990, and the staff at Daleville was sitting down, and we watched the Miller Neal game from that year, and we were just—I mean, we were in awe. Uh, you know, I mean, well disciplined, hard playing, and so I always told folks that I became a fan of T.R. Miller football before I ever got to coach a down, you know, at T.R. Miller. Um, you know, I'm, 
I always kind of lean, and I know in looking at some of the, you know, in looking at some of the criteria for the committee and looking at ranking and stuff, I mean, definitely the 94 team was up there. Um, I thought that they were very good. They played well as a team, and they had a good mixture of athletes and 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 just role players for the team. Um, I felt like going into that game, we could compete, and I thought we did compete. We didn't compete as well as I'd hoped. But if I'm listing teams of the 90s, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put 94 somewhere up there in the top three because my next two that I, that I have to lump in there are, of course, 91 and 90. Um, you know, working the defensive side of the ball and trying to stop Gibson and working the defensive side of the ball and trying to stop Terrence Samuel and James Fountain. I mean, what incredible ball players. And, you know, you get tasked with trying to find a way to slow them down or hold them down. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to throw any shade on any other team in the nineties, but that would probably be my top three. I mean, um, 90, probably looking at the Hanley game, you know, that, that was a, that was a hard fought game. Uh, eventually in the, in the fourth round, um, I know that during that time, you know, <clears throat> 88, 89 had been Pike County as a South State representative to the state championship game. Miller had to get by Pike County um, in 90. Um, and then in 92, we had to get past a, a good Miller team and then turn around and eventually have to play Pike County again. And so, you know, that whole first bit of the 90s, late 80s, you had three teams that were, you know, pretty dominant in South Alabama, you know, and I think that that by far Miller was probably the more dominant team during that time. Um, but... There was just something different about T.R. Miller football. And um, and those are the teams that really, to me, stand out. Now, I've watched, I've, <laughs> I've watched a lot of Miller football because starting in 94, after y'all put us out, uh, I started coming to T.R. Miller playoff games and so I got a front row seat um, and very appreciative that you let me come down on the sideline. So I had a really good seat and I got to visit with Ron, Ron Hadley and others on the sideline, you know, yeah. uh, during those 1990 games. All right. So I've, I've got one more question for you. Right. So you, you, you coached at Miller for 14 years. What's the best team? that we had during the years that you coached at Miller, which was from 2014, excuse me, 2004 
2017, I believe. So what was the best best team that you coached? The best team that I coached? Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's a hard call. This could uh, affect the rankings now. I don't want I don't want the committee coming back to me. I, I will say this: uh, a two thousand the two thousand twelve team um, that was a that was a really special team. You know, had an undefeated season. I think going into the Neal game, uh, then played a tough midfield team and lost by two. So that one is pretty. That's pretty tough. 2013, you know, losing to a really good Leeds team in the playoffs uh, and and was really outmanned and out-athlete. They had incredible size. They had incredible depth. And we just hung in there and hung in there and hung in there. And we had a chance to win the ball game. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to go on. Those... Those two are, you know, they, they really stand out. 2004, which was the first year that I got to, I got to coach T.R. Miller football. And um, we had the opportunity, um, you know, to, to have an undefeated regular season, which was, I mean, just incredible. Um, and that, one of the highlights for me, probably as always, was that we beat Pike County in Brundage, uh, and didn't just didn't just whoop up on them a little bit. We whooped up on them pretty good, <laughs> and, which you know is always mm-hmm. a good thing. It's always people. a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, what a great rivalry that has been. You know, to go over there. Um, Jordan Colley, I mean, he was on fire that night. I mean, he just... He was. Uh, I mean... Threw for 330 was, yards, I think it was. Yeah. But, he, I mean, he didn't throw but like 10 passes or something. <laughs> I mean, it was something. It was something ridiculous. But that was a good football team. That um, The 04 team was a good team. They... um. And 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 as you mentioned to me a while back, and all they also had the hurricane to deal with that year, and uh, we kind of got away from football for a few days there because of the the uh, uh, the hurricane situation and all. So that that a lot to deal with, but um, uh, but they were a, a good football team, went undefeated during the regular season, and uh, and just really did a did a terrific job. All right, coach, listen, thank you, I appreciate your your input and uh we're we're getting ready to go with the top 25 here and so um uh thank you and um well, we'll be talking to I you again soon it. all right i'll be i appreciate it i'm looking forward to hearing what everybody's thoughts are about putting together this list i was glad to see that it expanded because i think the top 10 would have would have messed us up because there's just too many there's too many good teams over the years so anyway i appreciate it coach on the next episode we're going to start counting them off the greatest miller teams of all time this has been a minute with coach riggs 